Thanks very much, Debbie. Let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are the speaking God. And we praise you that you've been speaking to us of this wonderful news of the Lord Jesus, the gospel, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Please speak into our hearts once again. Speak into our lives. Speak to us of Christ and fix our eyes on him for his name's sake. Amen. Well, Nick had been a Christian for 30 years. Uh, He'd uh, come to know Christ through the youth work. He'd been baptized shortly afterwards, and then uh, he got to know his Bible pretty well as the years had gone by. He'd been involved in a a number of different ministries in the church, and he knew he was a sinner, but those, you know, headline-grabbing sins that people really have a problem with, they, they weren't much of a problem for him. He couldn't help that he, he, he was feel that he was, he was in a better place than all of these young Christians that seem to be in the church these days. They didn't seem to volunteer quite as much as when extra help was needed. He found himself being more irritated week by week by what others didn't do rather than rejoicing in what he had to do. Well, he resented being at the King Centre late to have to lock up again. Laura had started coming on to church quite recently. She enjoyed the songs and the friendly people. She'd always believed in God. And now that she had children, she felt there was time to do something about it. The problem was there seemed to be all this serious talk about sin, which just got her down a bit. I mean, she knew she wasn't perfect, but she wasn't really a bad person. She knew Jesus had died for her because he loved her, and that was great. But but the idea of Jesus being the whole of your life, of giving control of everything to him, that that just seemed a a bit much, really. Fred was a a life group leader. He knew his Bible inside out. At work, people knew him as as a kind bloke who was quick to help others. He was always talking about his faith. He was looking forward to the remembrance tea coming up as an opportunity to invite some people along. But as he walked into church, he carefully avoided Tom, as usual. It had been uh, six years since the church meeting where they argued. Uh, He hadn't really spoken to him since then, just a sort of polite good morning. And he wasn't going to start until Tom came and fully apologized to him. Dawn read her Bible and prayed faithfully. She volunteered and served diligently. The problem was she just didn't feel any better as a person. She seemed to be getting worse. Her her sin was so real to her, and God's love seemed so frail. How how could she be sure she was really a Christian, that she really trusted Jesus? Perhaps her faith wasn't strong enough. I mean, all the smiling people singing around her, they just seemed so much more content in Christ. All these people have the same problem. They have lost sight of or never fully grasped the beauty of the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, I go as far as to say as the majority of problems that I've faced in my life as a minister in the church have been because people, including me, have failed to have justification by grace alone through faith alone written indelibly on our hearts. That is, that the only way a human can be right with God, justified, 
is by the free gift, grace alone, of the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, received through faith, through trusting in His word of promise. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's what Romans 4 is all about. You see, having established that all people are guilty before God, that's what Paul has done in Romans 1.18 to 3.20, that both the religious Jew with the Old Testament law and, and the pagan Gentile are guilty, so we had this verdict in 3 chapter 10, there is no one righteous, not even one person in the whole world. Last week, Paul outlined the solution. There's a righteousness, a right relationship, a right standing, a perfect status with God that comes not from ourselves. It is given through Jesus' death at the cross. There he bears the punishment that our sin deserves. He takes our unrighteousness and we are given his righteous status before God in exchange. I contribute my sin I get Jesus' righteousness. But but who's that gift for? Because Paul anticipates the Christians from a a Jewish background interrupting him in his argument. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Have a look down with me. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Uh, Just hold on a minute, Paul. (laughs) What about our great forefather Abraham? I mean, he's the one who all God's Old Testament people were descended from. Didn't he have to prove his faith by obeying God? And so Paul sets out by proving justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And here's the first thing he shows us. It's not faith and works. It's faith not works. Look at verse 2 with me. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Oh, you're right. If Abraham was accepted because of the way he lived his life, he could boast. But not before God, because verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, from the account of Abraham. God's just taken the childless Abraham outside his tent and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Quite a promise to a a very old man with a barren wife. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Credited doesn't mean a a credit he earned. It, It could be translated reckoned or counted. Because Abraham believed his promise, God counted him as righteous before him. Paul illustrates it with a a simple pay packet story in verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. I mean, when you get your wages each month, it's not a present from your employer, is it? It's not a gift. You've earned the money. In fact, if your employer stopped paying you, You'd have every right to say, that's not fair. Wages are owed. They're due. But verse 5, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. If you trust that God counts guilty people innocent because of Jesus, God credits you. He counts you as righteous, as innocent before him. 
I mean, imagine there's a, a heavenly database of our lives. Each of us has got a, a file up there in the, the cloud, whatever the cloud is and wherever it is. All, all a record of our thoughts, our, our words, our actions. And there are two columns. Let's call them good and bad. Or, or we could call them credit with God and debt with God. And we've already seen that, that every file is labeled guilty. We're all in debt to God and we cannot pay it. The record of our lives condemns us according to God's perfect standards. Now, when Abraham trusted God's promise, the debt column of his file is wiped out. And the credit column is is filled to the brim with God's perfect standards, righteousness. And if anyone says, how is that fair? Well, God says, "Well, well, have you seen the Jesus file? Because of the Jesus file, I've squared the account of all the forgiven forefathers who trusted my promises. More than that, I've squared the account of all people who trust in my son, the Lord Jesus. And if you look at the Jesus file, in the debt column is all our sin and guilt and failure, the things we've just confessed and the things we haven't yet done and confessed, all counted against Jesus at the cross. And the result is that out of the righteousness, his never-ending perfect righteousness column, we are made right with God. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? A beautiful transaction. We're declared innocent when we're guilty. All by the work of Christ on the cross. No wonder David, King David, describes it as a blessing when he writes Psalm 32. That's what is quoted next in verses 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You see, if the emphasis with Abraham was the righteousness given him by God, for the adulterous murderer King David, well, the emphasis is the sin that he's all too conscious of covered over. Verse 8, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Never count against them. That's blessing, isn't it? Knowing that the things you cannot forgive yourself for, God will never count against you. Never. It's as though they never happened in God's eyes. He keeps no record of wrongs. He's not going to go back to that sin you did a little while ago when you repeat it in the future. I can't believe you did that again, says the Lord. No, never count against you. They might trouble your conscience, but they don't even cross his mind as he looks upon you. Why? Because of faith. Not not that faith is something you give God, as though faith earns his favor. No, faith is simply trusting what God says, that Christ has dealt with your sin. Faith is actually looking away from you, looking away from everything you and I do, from, from our abilities, from our achievements, and from our failures. And it's looking towards Jesus and all he's done. And Paul longs for them to know that blessing. But because there is nothing sweeter than knowing you are fully and finally and freely forgiven, right with God now and 
forever, never count against you. See, blessing isn't self-righteousness. We often live and behave as though blessing is self-righteousness, as though the best thing for us is to be sure and certain that we've done the right thing, that we were the victim and they wronged us. That's how we argue a lot of the time, isn't it? Our lives are full of, but I didn't mean this, or but I was tired, or but you started it. But that's the road to misery. You tell me one thing that you're arguing about your righteousness in that makes you happy after this, and I'll be flabbergasted, astounded. I bet it's making you miserable clinging to your own righteousness. Constantly defending ourselves and resenting others. Now, blessing is never having your sins counted against you. It's being able to admit how wrong you are, how much of a criminal we are, and knowing that in his great love, God has counted that against his perfect son. He will never count it against you. It's not faith and works. It's faith not works. And that's a blessing open to anyone, to all. Because Paul's heckler hasn't finished yet. Here's the second thing we see. It's not faith for some, but faith for all. Look at verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Because Abraham and David, they were both Jews, weren't they? And God had given circumcision as a sign of his covenant, his promises with Abraham. Since then, all Jewish boys have been circumcised when eight days old. If you became a, a Jew as an adult in the Old Testament, you had to be circumcised. It tended to cut down on the number of converts. At the time that Paul is writing, there's a a big controversy raging whether to be a genuine Christian, you had to keep the Old Testament law to become culturally Jewish. Uh, They had a big conference about it in Jerusalem in AD 40s, in the late AD 40s. You you can read about it in Acts chapter 15. Uh, They decided that you didn't, if you were a Gentile and not a Jew, need to be circumcised. And Paul proves that. Here, look what he says in verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Abraham is credited righteousness in Genesis 15. He's given the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. It was an outward sign of the already inward work that God had given him right standing, righteousness. And so Paul says, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteous might be, righteousness might be credited to them. What matters is not whether you're circumcised or not, says Paul. It's whether you have faith like Abraham, whether you trust God's promises. You've heard those adverts on the radio that sound too good to be true. You know the sort of um, ones. Free, interest-free loan on all new cars bought with us. Or free family tickets to Disney Orlando. And just at the point you're getting excited, as soon as the good news is given, the voice suddenly speeds up, doesn't it? And says this, 
Terms and conditions apply. Open only on the third Wednesday of every month after the hoot of the lesser-known Welsh owl to people between three foot two and three two, two and a half inches tall who are willing to give us the contents of their bank accounts. You think, what do they say? F free car? Well, that's what Paul fears the Jewish Christians in Rome would say. Yep. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a free gift. But terms and conditions apply. You must be circumcised, obey certain food laws, keep certain Old Testament religious festivals. You must become culturally Jewish. No, says Paul. The gift of righteousness came with no strings attached. The sign of circumcision came afterwards to remind people of the gift, not as a term and condition. Did you know what this means? It means there's no one excluded from God's people by family background. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter if this is your first time ever in church or you've been here every Sunday since your birth. All that matters is you trust that God has dealt with your sin at the cross of Christ. And he gives you a right relationship with him in exchange. Even today, sometimes people can get confused between the sign, the outward sign, and the inward work. So they can think that taking the Lord's Supper and being baptized is, is necessary for a right relationship with God. They're not. Oh, we say this morning, if you are a Christian, you should get baptized. It's God's sign to encourage you and his people to strengthen your faith. But being baptized isn't necessary to receive righteousness from God. It's a sign that you have received righteousness from God. Righteousness is a gift through faith. But, but the other side of the coin is true as well. It means that only through faith can you be right with God. You can get baptized. You can take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. You can attend church regularly. You can think you're nice. You can actually be nice. You can look like a good Christian person and it will make no difference at all if you don't trust that when Christ died for you, he died for your sin. And that is the only way you can be right with God. You see, faith is all you need, but you all need faith now and forever. And there are no additions to that. Because thirdly, Paul says, look, it's not faith then live by law. No, it's faith for sure. Look at verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Heir of the world is a summary of all the promises Abraham received. I don't know if you realize this, but we're playing for very big stakes here. What's being offered in Romans 4 is not some sort of small-scale religious experience or a comforting Sunday sideshow that's largely irrelevant to the rest of life. No, this is the promise of the God of the universe, that through one of Abraham's descendants, he would rule all creation. The promise that through one of Abraham's descendants, the whole world would be turned from a place of curse into a place of blessing. Uh, the promise that through one of Abraham's descendants, God would gather a people to himself for relationship with him. They're fantastic promises. But they're not Received by keeping the law, says Paul. Look at verse 14. For if those who depend on the law are heirs of the promise, faith means nothing. 
and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law there is no transgression look says Paul if you're trying to earn God's righteousness by keeping his law well the problem is you can't all you can do is fail to keep his law and bring God's wrath his right anger upon you I I may be like my life group you were looking at the ten commandments this week and as we went through the commandments we had to admit none of us kept any of them especially when you think that Jesus takes the commandments and he applies them to the thoughts of our hearts not one person kept one commandment in my life group now I might just have got a particularly useless life group but I suspect if you're honest that's true of all of us I was on a speed awareness course Monday before last. It's funny how people won't turn up to those. We're righteous in Christ, but I, shh. On the, the one that Boo, my wife, went on. Yeah, she's been on one as well. <laughs> I've actually been on two, but the other one was a long time ago. They said, they said at the beginning of Boo's, you know, obviously you might be a bit embarrassed about being here. You probably won't want to use your real name. At which point, a huge and hairy builder leant over the table and went, my name's Tracy. <laughs> That set the tone for the rest of the day. Anyway, Jack, our trainer, said on the speed awareness course, I know what you're all thinking. It's so unfair. I was only doing 35 and a 30. And then went on for an hour to show us how that was the difference between the life and death of a child who stepped off the pavement 10 meters in front of us. By the way, church, you need to slow down outside this building. If you're doing more than 20 as you go around Copper Gardens, you're doing something that Christ has to die for. Because 1 Peter 2.13 says, submit to authority. That's nothing to do with the sermon, but it just gets on my wick as you take off on the speed bumps outside there. You'll kill a child. We'll kill a child out there, and then we'll all feel uh, perhaps we should slow down. Let's do it before we do that, shall we? 20 round here. Okay, back to Romans 4. Got that off my chest. I was on the speed awareness course. Of course, it was harsh for me, Yeah. <laughs> I was doing 73 and a 70. All go, ah, ah. The problem was, apparently my van should only be driven at 60 along a dual carriageway. So I actually was 13 miles an hour over the speed limit. I didn't know that. That didn't matter. Because I was breaking the law. Now I know the law. It points out to me how I'm breaking the law. That's what Paul is saying. When you know the law, all it does is not enable you to keep it. It shows you how you've transgressed it, how you've crossed it, how you failed. If God's promises depend on law-keeping, then we all have no hope. But they don't. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. By grace. Same word as gift in verse 4. This is a promise given to us, not earned by us. We did nothing to deserve the promise that God makes us right with him through Jesus. And so we can do nothing to keep it and nothing to lose it. That's why Paul can say it's guaranteed, it's certain, it's for sure, forever. There's nothing to add to it. If you have faith, you can be utterly sure of God's promise to you. There's no standard afterwards that you have to achieve. And why was Abraham's faith so effective? Not because of Abraham, but because of the nature of the God in whom he believed. Look at the end of verse 17 with me. Do you see what it says about 
God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. This might be the best bit of the chapter yet. It's our last point this morning. It's not faith in you, but faith in what God can do. But because Abraham's faith wasn't some sort of vague trust in God. We we sometimes think of faith like that, isn't it? Like some quality I've got. You know, I have faith, a vague trust in God. It wasn't even reciting a, a formal creed or a set of beliefs. No, Abraham's faith was trusting in God's specific promises to him and Sarah. Look at verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Against hope, he believed upon hope. I mean, the promise was global. Do you see that at the end of verse 18? God God told him that that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. I mean, Abraham didn't have a clue where all nations were. He couldn't go on Wikipedia and look up a list. He couldn't do that thing we first did when Google Earth came out and zoom out and look at the whole world and then zoom into our lives again. He didn't even know what the world looked like. It was a global promise, but, but even more, it was a personal promise. Look at verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. She'd been, she'd been infertile all her life. She was in her 90s. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being, being the midwife, greeting them at the 12-week scan at the maternity unit? You know, in they come with their Zimmer frames. We come for our scan. And, and, and if you're a polite midwife, you might say, are you sure you want the maternity unit? Maybe, maybe the geriatric, we don't say geriatric, care for the elderly ward. It, under your breath, you're muttering, or oh, the psychiatric unit, I think, probably. <laughs> but that's what they did. That, that doesn't mean that Abraham never doubted. I mean, now I know verse 20 says he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But, but the Jews who read Paul's letter, the Jewish Christians, they knew Genesis as well as, well, better than we know Genesis. They would have known time and time again. Abraham struggled to trust God's promises. He tried to go his own way. But in the end, he did stick with the Lord through his doubts. And more importantly, the Lord stuck with him. Because here's this very precious verse. Verse 21. Have a look at verse 21 with me. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. I prefer the literal translation. Being fully convinced that the one who promised is powerful also to do. That's what faith is. Being convinced the one who promised is also powerful to do. It's nothing about you. It's not trusting your power to pull off being a Christian for the rest of your life. No, it's trusting God's power to pull off everything. The one who promised is also powerful to do. And so verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The, The words it was credited to him were not for him alone. You know, Abraham trusted, and sure enough, Sarah's dead womb produced a son, Isaac. And it was a miracle. 
And from Isaac came the people, uh, son Jacob and Esau, and came the 12 tribes of Israel, and then a great nation. But more importantly, 1,500 years later or so, there was another miraculous birth. And a young girl gave boy to a son named Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham. And through him, all peoples in the world can be blessed because they can have a right standing with God and be forgiven their sins. And we know Jesus' power to keep God's promises. Look at verse 24. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you want to know how God, the one who promised, also is the one who has the power to do? Christ is risen. The tomb was empty. He's alive today. And so Paul says he was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Jesus died on the cross and took all our guilt and shame. And then God raised him and declared, this is my innocent son who has dealt with the sin of all my people. Now you are right. You are justified before me forever. God brought life to the dead. Dead people like you and me given life with him forever. He called things into being that were not. We are not his children and he calls us into his family as his children. It's a global promise for all those who trust in God's capable ability to deal with their sin through his son at the cross. It's a personal promise. However bad you feel that you have been, however much forgiveness seems impossible to you, it is possible to God. Because the one who is promised is also powerful to do. So what about the people we started with? If you find yourself resenting Christians who appear just a bit less keen than you, just, just don't get stuck in as much as you, remember that you are only right with God yourself by the gift of grace through faith. It's not something you've earned. And we serve Christ because of what he's done for us. There's nothing to add to that. We don't serve him because of what we must do for him. And if you think here we just take this sin business and this salvation business a bit too seriously, we're always talking about cross and death and blood and judgment, that's because that's at the heart of history. It's the heart of God's plan for the world. It's through making people right with him through the death of his son that he's going to bring blessing to the whole world. What we're talking about here is whether we stand eternally condemned before God, facing his wrath, or eternally innocent before him as a gift, the most precious gift of love ever known in the universe. It is very serious, and we make no apology for that. And if you're here today and you haven't forgiven someone, I'm not saying that they will necessarily ever say sorry. I'm not promising you that they will ever be able to make it right in my life I've had to learn to forgive someone who died before I had the courage to tell them how much they'd hurt me but if you haven't forgiven someone then you need to remember 
that you rejoice in a God who has promised never to count your sins against you. It took the death of his son to achieve that. There's, there's no righteousness for you to stand on. So why are you still holding the failure of others against them? And lastly, if you struggle to believe your faith is genuine or strong enough or you're a good enough Christian, your status with God it isn't based even on the strength of your trust in his promises. It's based on his ability to deliver them. And the one who promised is also powerful to do. How do we know that? Verse 25. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's all you need to believe. However weakly you believe it, however waveringly, however much you think it's an extraordinary thing, if you trust that God has promised you righteousness with him through Christ, it is yours, a gift forever. Let's pray together. You might find yourself in one of those four categories. You might not. Why not just take a moment now in the quiet to do business with God? Maybe there's a sin to confess, a lack of forgiveness to admit to. Maybe there's just thanks to give to your Father in heaven who's made you right with him through his Son.